Fred will tell you if, it, if you're doing it wrong. Oh, the, I, okay, I have good, so good. many people who tell me when I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's life on the internet these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, yes, the internet. Set your phasers to sexy. Comic books like the way you look, like the way you always mess with your hair. Playing PS3, it's just you and me in my dreams, and I want to go to bed. I like you, I like you, I like the way you're ignoring. Welcome, loyal listeners, to more bonus content because if you're listening to any podcast these days, you're probably getting a lot of it, and that includes us. Brent here, and I wanted to delve into a little bit of something that I really love but haven't had a chance to really talk about on the show, which is pen and paper RPGs. I grew up playing these from pretty much grade 7 all through university, and Dungeons & Dragons has had a severe comeback in the last little while, but there's other games out there too. So I uh, I went to the internet and I recruited two guys who I know know a fair amount about role playing games. One of which definitely knows more than I do, and the other I'm pretty sure knows more than I do. First up, we have Jim Zub, writer of Black Panther: Agents of Wakanda, Conan: Serpent War, co-creator of Wayward, Stone Star, Skull Kickers, and who has done a lot of work with Dungeons and Dragons including a set of Young Adventurer's Guides. So uh, thanks for joining us here, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's going to be fun to talk about uh, tabletop gaming. I love this stuff, as you know. And also joining us, you can hear him on Q107 in Toronto every afternoon, or you can also tune into his Issue Zero podcast. But beyond that, he's also a very good comic book writer with books like The Fourth Planet. Fearless Fred Kennedy is also joining us. Thank you for having me, man. I'm excited to talk about non D D RPG. Hey, there's nothing wrong with D D. I d- <laughs> <laughs> That's I how did. we start this I discussion, did. of course. <laughs> no, I like I didn't mean that to sound disparaging of D D because like I'm pretty sure we're all in the same that was basic Dungeons and Dragons or D D for beginners, the red book. That was the first game that I ever played. And oh, yeah, yeah that's, same here. Uh, but I so it's, that's not me bad-mouthing it, but I'm just a bigger fan of other things, you know? Well, it's like I like apple pie, but I also like cherry pie. <laughs> I think what's amazing, like, um, you know, you were mentioned at the top of this that, that you know, D&D has seen a huge resurgence. And it's been insane, like transformative. Um, the game, you know, went through a huge surge in the 80s. But currently, uh, 2019 was their biggest year ever, bigger than than any other year. And it's become a real kind of pop culture touchstone. And I think that's good for the hobby as a whole because it gives people an entryway to eventually jump into other games and to, to have a baseline to understand the precepts of, of tabletop role playing and then do other stuff from there and try out different genres, different systems, and just, you know, expand their horizons on that on that front for sure. Yeah, part of the, what inspired this was uh, one of our listeners who I've become friends with 
uh, they got into D&D via Stranger Things, mm-hmm. and they were over at my home, and I mentioned a different role-playing game, and she's like, and their their daughter was like, oh, what's that? And I'm like, oh, let me show you the book. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just to touch upon it a little bit, uh, Fred briefly mentioned it. Uh, how did you guys get into role-playing? Is it definitely Dungeons & Dragons for both of you, the, the, the Red Box? Yeah, yeah. For me, it was it was the red box. My older cousins were already playing D anD D, and they brought my uh, older brother and I into it. I was the youngest of this little group, and for me, it was a huge touchstone for just better communication with my brother because I was eight years old and he was twelve. And that doesn't sound like a big gap, but it is when you're that age. And so it gave us kind of a a way to commiserate with each other and communicate. And uh, it really opened up, uh, uh, you know, like a creative fire in me to want to tell stories and stuff. And I've said this a hundred times in a different, hundred different interviews, but I wouldn't be a writer today without Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games because it, it, it taught me how to tell stories, how to collaborate with others, you know, and, and how to entertain. And it's just a huge part of, of my process now. For me, it was also the red book and I found it actually at a friend's house and we were 12 and then we started playing a little bit of D&D but my mother this is a really weird and talking about Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s Jim you'll totally remember all this stuff <laughs> the backlash against D&D in the 80s was oh, pretty severe the satanic panic yes yeah. exactly and my 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 mom is is very churchy and well meaning and she had a cousin who was schizophrenic and got really into Dungeons and Dragons and it caused a lot of problems in their families. So when I was talking about Dungeons and Dragons, that was a big no-no. But one of my friends who also played D&D played another game from Palladium, uh, the Robotech role-playing game. And so Robotech (laughs) was a cartoon that we loved watching and that I, I showed her this, and and it was kind of like a little sidestep. She, <laughs> she doesn't realize what's going on, because I just oh mom, it's just a game for Robotech. She's like, oh, you watch that cartoon? That's okay. So <laughs> that was really it. Was Robotech the Palladium Robotech RPG was the first role playing game that I really got into. Nice. Uh, it was easier to get into as well because the Heroes Unlimited core rule book was like. 35 bucks at warp two comics, which was the store that I went to the Robotech book was $15. I love you remember the price and everything. I, Cause I used my babysitting money from babysitting the kids next door. And it was like, you had, I remember like I calculated it out how many weeks of babysitting I would need to get the book and then a set of dice as well. And I still have that set of dice and I still use them. I always say when I'm DMing and the players are getting out of line, I'm like, I'll break out the gold dice. Do you want me to break out the gold dice? I will. <laughs> I will. Yeah. So I remember everything. It was the Robotech game and it had those elements of sci-fi. And then we kind of started adding our own things to it. And and the same with Jim. It's like for a kid looking for an ability to like exercise their creative thought and and have a way of putting it together, role-playing games are a fantastic tool. They're just great. I'm surprised that you don't see more like English classes and language arts classes using them to teach creative storytelling. 
Oh, I think they're being, they're really expanding in that area. Like you're seeing more librarians are using them, more creative writing courses are using them. You know, it's funny hearing about these Hollywood luminaries. Uh, um, the Russo brothers were bragging that they love D&D and it was a great creative exercise. A lot of actors in Hollywood and producers are talking now that they either grew up on D&D or they've started playing in the last few years. And I think it's just it's a fun way to spend some time and to collaborate with other people instead of just passively having a story happen, you know, to you essentially. That, yeah, that, sorry, go ahead. Keep going, Brett. Sorry. I was <laughs> just going to say, like when we were talking about uh, like the evolution and stuff, I was playing the, the palladium games for a while. And then one of my friends that I met in high school, cause it was past junior high. So we'd all been playing the palladium games for like three years and we became very like set in our ways of the way we played the games. And then he introduced us to advanced D and D the second edition with the Thacko rule. Mm-hmm. And, and when that was out, uh, I know that's not a very popular version of the game. And so when I had an opportunity to come back to dungeons and dragons as an experienced player with that game, I was just like, why would I do it? And then I got into Rifts, which was completely gone. (laughs) It was a complete other direction. In high school, we played a lot of the Palladium games as well. Like that was, it was, we were the perfect age. Like you and I are pretty close to the same age. And I think that those, those books hit at a very particular time in a very particular age group. And they felt ridiculous and over the top and cool. And, and there was so much stuff. And so there's yeah. different types of players. So there's, you know, you talk about people who are very story centric or more kind of role play centric. And then there's um, there's a whole manner of, of more strategic players who like the battle maps and the miniatures and all that stuff. And people who love what they call crunch, which is like the rules and the stuff, the options that you can <laughs> have for your characters. And at a certain age, I don't know what it is, like a young teenage boy, like the crunch, like knowing all the options and having more options, even if you don't use 90% of them, is like a badge of honor. Like that, So the Palladium rules were built for the guys who wanted to be able to say, oh, sure, in D&D there are whatever, you know, 10 character classes or 12 character classes. Here there's 480. <laughs> like, that means it's better because it's a bigger number. And well, I was love that about it, you know. I was going to say, it for especially as a teenager, Rifts was like – the best bang for your buck oh, in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah. The kitchen sink <laughs> role playing game. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it like we played one game where we were uh vampire hunting and one of the guys was a giant from the fantasy setting. And I was a space glitter boy and we had like an Atlantis. Slayer. Should probably dial back just a little bit and explain what riffs is. Cause if someone's listening, they're going to be like, <laughs> okay. what, what yeah. crack ridden monstrosity have you guys unleashed here? So, so, my understanding, my loose memories of Kevin Long and Kevin Simpedia's masterpiece is that there was a nuclear war that yeah. ripped open uh, rifts along the ley lines of the Earth, thereby creating gateways that anything could exist there. And right. that it, was, it's I think, Rick and Morty before Rick and Morty. Absolutely. Like it's, it's literally portals that open up to other dimensions and stuff just pours out. So that might be robots, or it could be superheroes, or it could be mutant monsters, anything. And so because the game had this kitchen sink appeal, and you could justify any combination of characters instantaneously, you could say, well, I'm a dragon. I'm an old you know, medieval knight with a lance. And then, well, I'm a you know, freaking uh, a robotic mutant 
full of nuclear warhead energy or whatever, it, it didn't matter because you all just stepped out of a portal and you were on Earth now. And, uh, hey, you want to go over here and kill some stuff? And the answer was always yes. <laughs> we pulled in our Robotech characters into the game. Of course. I remember I had, uh, and that was part of it because, again, like your teenagers, you don't have that disposable income. And it's those beautiful paperback books with that, those Kevin Long art with just the right amount of sexuality at play for you to be like, <laughs> yeah. And you'd kind of like embarrassingly hide it from your parents because you didn't want them seeing it. I, I've the, always so, wished that I could see Kevin Long at a comic convention, but I've never seen him anywhere. No, no, I don't think. I mean, he hasn't done any of that stuff in years. But so what's interesting for me is like looking back at it, you know, the rule books were were a way for us to sort of, you know, play with our friends and and run the games but they were also like literally barriers so that you had rules you could call out so if someone said well you can't do this you go oh according to the book i can and that was like a big thing was <laughs> instead of having like when i talk to my players now like i still play role-playing games absolutely love them and we're all adults and if th something goes wrong or if a rule is broken and it doesn't work in the game we just stop everything and we talk and we're like hey this is not fun this is not working whatever it says in the text in this context of what we're doing, it's not functioning properly and no one's having a good time. Let's um, let's do something different with this. And everyone is pretty mature and able to, to talk about this stuff. You know what I mean? But when we were teenagers, you needed to have it in black and white on the page. You needed to be able to say... <laughs> it, so, if, so if someone could make it a break, like just break the game in half over their knee, then that was fine because for some reason everyone would just let it go because you're like well it's in the rule book i guess we have to let you know uh, uh glenn ruin everything like it just <laughs> that, that was just how it worked because you didn't have the social confidence to be able to 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 go against it do you know what i mean adam gandy was that guy at our table, by the way. <laughs> I love calling him. him out right now <laughs> i remember specifically because th i think that a, a lot of people don't remember it was not cool like to play role-playing no. games we and it was a thing where because i had just moved to canada and and we were in edmonton and uh i didn't have a lot of friends and i remember like gravitating towards those those friends and they played in the library at lunch hour and what it did was we would play at the back corner table in the library every lunch hour and we would be like hiding you know, be hidden away from everybody so that we could just play D&D &D and be left alone. And I I can still remember the day Steve Marquez took the dice off the table and threw them across the library. <laughs> I'll never we, forget uh, our, it. My yeah. group had the library record of being kicked out the quickest because oh. we can't. We had played like the day before and the librarian had gotten annoyed at us, Mrs. P. And when we came in the next day to play, we just came in the door and she saw us and just pointed and went out. And that was it. We didn't even like make it past like the book barrier. Oh my gosh. We, so we had sort of two groups throughout high school. Like I had the one group and we, uh, you know, we're playing some D and D and then we would dig into the Palladium books pretty heavily. So before riffs came out, we were playing a lot of heroes unlimited, a lot of heroes unlimited. Uh, we were playing, uh, and, and, but it was usually like a, a, a Marvel, uh, universe kind of thing. So I would use all the Marvel characters, but then these characters would get added to it. You know what I mean? 
um, because I love the Marvel stuff and I was obsessed with the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. And then we place a, a little bit of Robotech. We played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then when Rifts came out, because it was the kitchen sink and you could smash all of it together, we're like, well, clearly that's the best one. So we would just play that <laughs> and, and use all those elements as much as humanly possible. And every time a new book came out, everyone would want to remake their characters and overhaul all the crap. And, you know, but somewhere midway through high school, a different group of friends who some shared kind of continuity between them, but mostly off on their own. Um, this friend of mine, Mike, he was getting the White Wolf book. So he picked up Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse, those original uh, games from White Wolf. And I, I borrowed the vampire book and I was absolutely blown away by the book because it was so different. The, the rules, you know, Palladium was like an over, it was, it was like a sugar junkie version of D&D. But you had your basic character stats and you rolled your D20. It was it was D and D esque, you know. I think that's pretty fair to say, on on, on overdrive. Um, I always describe it as like the only real big difference is the percentile dice, you know, for the yeah. skills. That's the big mm. difference is the two. The biggest, yeah, big time. I mean, you know, it was also broken to all hell. Like there was no attempt at at rules balance. One character <laughs> could just be able to kill everyone else in the party without any, you know, whatever. But anyways, um, the, the White Wolf stuff had a really different rule system with the dice pools. It had a very different feel. The layout of the books and the artwork in the books was really elegant and very classy and mature. And at the right around the same time, my comic reading habits were changing where I was starting to shift away from superheroes and into like the Vertigo stuff and indie books. And so it just felt like it was propping that up as well like you know when you're reading the invisibles or you're you know as sandman and stuff like that you're like this is friggin' cool i am a mature adult i am reading about dark and interesting and introspective stuff and then the game comes along and it's also very you know dark and introspective and and cool and so i had these two kind of groups where with the one group of friends we would just sort of smash stuff around in riffs and with the other group of friends we would try and get these vampire games off the ground and it was always tough because you know you still had the goofiness and the sense of like whatever you know chips and pop sitting around the table laughing and whatnot but you're trying to tell a darker story or you're trying to do something cooler but you're not quite able to ratify it you know what i mean and the the white wolf books i like the guys making those books must have known that with their target audience because it fed into one another. Like you would have like quotes from Swamp Thing and oh Sandman yeah, in they, it those was all books. very much the same. And they, you know, that what they called the gothic punk aesthetic was really mm. taking. It was a good subculture there that they were well plugged into, and they were a part of the you know the original developers and stuff. They were the guys going to goth clubs and and doing all that kind of stuff as well. They were also nerdy, and so it was this kind of it felt like the bridge to something more mature or more, you know, deeper that you could delve into. And I was kind of fascinated by it, but I didn't really, I think, get a handle on it until after high school. Like high school was so jam packed with palladium and D and D and then, you know, like college where I was also trying to reinvent myself as well. It felt like a cool place to kind of dig into these different games and try some of that stuff as well. You know, it's wild the way you're describing that game is the is the experience 
of like the going to the comic book shop because there was only one shop that was close and it was well when i say close it was two bus rides to get there (laughs) and we had to go and so you would buy things and you would kind of like seek approval from the guys (laughs) working at the store about what they Mm -hmm. would get Mm -hmm. but there was this one guy who worked at the shop and i will always remember that he would when he would come into the store he had a a speaker like a guitar amp that had punks not dead on it and he wore <laughs> fangs he had fangs and and i remember like he always played the vampire masquerade books and every time we would buy like a source book i i i, I want to say it was when i bought the africa world book for rifts but it could have been anything i'm just you know piecing memories together here but I remember him making an offhand comment about it not being as good as Vampire Masquerade. And from that moment, I didn't want to play it. Oh. Like, right then. You know? And, and, when, and when people talk, these are conversations that people are having right now about gatekeeping at comic book stores. Mm-hmm. And when anybody, somebody says, well, that's not really the way it is. It's like, it is. It can't be. I, can remember, hap- I remember it happening to me. Not all comic shops are like that. And, and, and not everybody that works at these stores are like that at all. I would say like sure. 99% aren't. But when you're like 15 spending what little money you have and the guy at the counter chirps you for something, you don't forget it. You just there don't is a forget weird feeling. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, though, about how you almost want the the retailer's approval. Like you'd buy a thing and they'd be like, it's cool, right? Uh, yeah, sure, kid, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like you really yeah. need me. You're going to spend your 15 bucks. It doesn't really, I don't care. But in your head, there's that you are seeking community. You're seeking yeah. approval. You're seeking something. And you know, that's why it was so interesting to me because in high school, it was our way to escape um, the rest of the social stuff that we didn't feel comfortable about. And then in college, everything flipped for me, where role-playing games became the way that I was meeting people, the way that I was engaging with other people and and building friendships, not just the friendships that I'd had, but bigger social groups around gaming and around the creative stuff that gaming endeavored. And that was what was so amazing for me is it is that transformation and we're seeing that now like if you try and explain to you know the the modern D community how bad it was it does sound like old kooky war stories well back in my day they hated us yeah, you know, yeah. like hated, <laughs> they'd lock you up and burn the books like you know that it, it, it doesn't sound real it sounds like you're putting on a ridiculous exaggeration, even though it was a real thing. You know what I mean? Like, and it's funny because now like, Oh wait, kids are reading and they're all hanging out together and they're making stuff and art. And this sounds like the greatest thing. But at the time it was just a very different kind of opinion and world and, and approach. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right now I, I find it, it's both good and kind of weird for me. I'm playing in, I've played in the last little while in two different games where it's a mix of adults. Like I'm just hit 40 this year Mm -hmm. and teenagers, like the fan, like the kids of my friends are playing with us. And like the game itself doesn't feel weird or anything, but then it's afterwards. It's like you, you weren't alive when I was doing this for like 
when I was your age. Like, but I think that's you know, one of the like reasons that, like, why weird brain shift. I think that's one of the reasons why it's surged again is because the people who have grown up with the games are now old enough to have kids who are old enough to play. And so there's a nostalgia of bringing this to the next generation. There's a nostalgia of re-engaging with older friends who you remember playing with and now having the digital ability to do so so much easier, whether that's scheduling time to get together or playing online like, you know, even more groups are doing now. I'm using it actually as a tool with my kids uh, to instill discipline. (laughs) And the way I do it is that they have chores that they got to get done. And if they don't do their chores, well, then they don't get to play D&D. So we play for about an hour and a half, two hours on Saturdays and Sunday afternoons. And they have their two characters. Um, One is called Jedi. The other one is called Anakin. They like Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like what I had to do was kind of like throw a hodgepodge version of D&D combining elements of 3.5 and of first edition so that it's very streamlined. But I also want them to have all the different skills. So they've got to think about how are they going to solve all these different problems? Like, well, you want to get information from this person, you know, what skill do you use? And you kind of have to, because they're only six and eight, you kind of have to pull them along, but sure, you can watch them immediately look down at their skill sheet. Like immediately they look down, what can I do? What can I do? And then they'll start at, what does this word mean? And it improves their vocabulary. Oh, you big know? time. It, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a fantastic tool, like using it with the kids and then getting them to think creatively and work together because one of them is more of a ranged magic guy who can heal. And the other one is just your classic meat shield. He just wants to go up and fight, fight, <laughs> fight, 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 fight. So it's, it's a great, it's a great way of like having father son time with the kids. And what I like to do is sometimes if they want to get a reroll, I'll be like, listen, give me 10 pushups and I'll give you a reroll. <laughs> like, so get them physically active as well. Again, oh my it's, it's a great way to like instill them to do little things. And I know that seems weird, but, it's not. When it's you've the got, same as buying any kind yeah. of – get them a toy or whatever. Better and that than just a, having a bunch of plastic stuff you buy them for doing their chores or whatever. Totally, man. And as a, as a, as a full 360 thing, my mother, who was the one that didn't want me playing Dungeons & Dragons when I was growing up, she's played with us a bunch what? of times now. Oh just my to God. Put, wow. Just to put a bit – because I've – we've – being older now, I can have the conversations and, you know, you look, it's easy to fall into that like hype circle when it's surrounding something is bad, something is bad. Then when you see that it's not, that makes it a lot easier, you know? Sure. My, so my parents, I, I do have a funny story about this. My, my mom took away the D and D books. My brother and I'd had a big argument about the game in general. And then she saw one of these TV things about, you know, satanism and all this stuff and so she took the books away for god over a month and we were so irritated and so annoyed and we kept badgering her to try and get the stuff back finally we wore my dad down and what he said was okay i'll try because we explained there's nothing bad about it there's nothing evil about it so we finally convinced him to try the game but my brother you know he's 12 or 13 years old at this point and you're trying to explain this you know in in role-playing games as a concept are hard to explain and easy to show. So you're trying to 
the abstraction of it seems really weird, right? Particularly at that age. And so we sit my dad down instead of just giving him a pre-gen character, like all the things you know about how to get someone in the door now. We didn't know any of that. So we sat there for almost two hours making a character, explaining excruciating detail about each thing, thinking that my dad's going to care and he doesn't. So he's just bored. And then he gets done. Finally, two hours. We play for like half an hour and his character dies against like a giant spider or something because he rolled bad. And he was like annoyed and he didn't understand. And we're laughing. We think it's the funniest thing ever. And then he he leaves and we're like, oh, crap. Oh, crap. So we go and we're literally hands cupped to the door listening to him talk to my mom. And she's like, well, and he goes, it's not satanic. It's just stupid. <laughs> she's like, what? They just they just sit at the table and they talk and then they roll dice and they make a little story. There's nothing wrong with it. They're doing math and stuff. It's just really boring, you know, and, and I don't understand why they enjoy it, but they do. So it's better than them going out and getting in trouble. And then, bam, we had the books back. <laughs> Have you pitched yeah. that new uh, Wizards of the Coast as a sell line on the yeah, back totally. of any of the books? It's, it's not satanic. <laughs> it's just stupid. <laughs> yeah. the math aspect is really good too like uh, you you gotta get them working quick to do math like okay what's your bonus for this right what right. did you roll add those together and getting them to do that repetitive stuff because math addition and subtraction and all that stuff on those smaller numbers is predominantly just like memorization and getting them to do it repeatedly gets their little brains going you know sure. and you you can see the excitement in their eyes it's fantastic Okay, so you mentioned that you didn't play Vampire because you were you were guilted about it and it ruined you. Um, so you've never played the White Wolf games ever? I have never played any of them, to oh, be honest with you. Crap, oh. man. I think we just figured out this summer one of my goals. I'm going to have to run a one-shot session or something with you. Dude, I am 100% open. Like, if you ran a one-shot Vampire session at, like, Fan Expo, I'm there. I'm at the table. You get me to come out, I'll be there. I would love to try it because, uh, like, I I think the the setting is very cool. The and... system is actually great. It's yeah. really innovative. It's really well put together. And, and it's I, so I, easy I actually, to make a character. It is. Like, it, I actually like once you get the rules tried. down, you can make a character in five minutes, no problem. I tried um, 5th Edition Vampire. It just came out last year, I want to say. I played a one-shot session with B. Dave Walters, Um He's been doing this series called one-on-one shots. So he does like an interview with, with industry people and then he runs a game and you talk about, you know, growing up gaming and all this kind of stuff. And then you play, it's about three hours total, maybe one hour of chatter and two hours of gameplay. Um, But I hadn't played the new edition and it was fascinating to me what I remembered of the old books, because it's been a while since I played and what was clearly new rules. And I was like, Oh, that's an interesting evolution or, you know, the choices that they're making in game design. Now I was really impressed. I was impressed with the way it's put together. I was impressed with the, 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 you know, like fifth edition D and D the game keeps growing and iterating and people find the most common sort of the ways people would house rule it or things that run smoother and incorporate those into the whole and move the system forward in interesting ways. It's cool stuff. Anyways, yeah, man, Fred, I want you to try it out now. What other games? So you play Palladium, you play D&D. What other games have you guys played that you like? Or what games do you recommend people try or, or any of that stuff? 
There was one RPG that I always wanted to play that I also never played, but it was simply because I didn't have the money to buy the books, was mm-hmm. the Star Wars RPG that came out in the mid oh, to late 90s. West, the that West End Games, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 that was one that I really wanted to get into. But again, it's like you take a look at the amount of books you have on your shelf for this game. And at that point, we had like the Ninja Turtles because we looked at our books as the ones all of us in our group had because sure. we would all buy the individual books yep. and then we yep. all had them. Uh, mm-hmm. But we to invest in a new game. Well, that's at least forty dollars. <laughs> And that's a lot of money back then. Yeah. And in 1995, that's like $4,000 today. It's interesting to me because um, we tried all sorts of different games. One of our friends, Mike, he he had a part-time job. And so he was constantly trying new games. He was buying all sorts of stuff. And so we got to sample all kinds of weird, funky games. You know, he would be obsessed with GURPS for a little while, which was this sort of generic role-playing game that that steve jackson games put out or he would get obsessed with the star wars game and we would play star wars for a little while or or the lord of the Rings system or or just whatever he was constantly trying new stuff and so that was sort of our touchstone for a bunch of different games um when i was in college in addition to playing a lot of white wolf a friend of mine who i played a lot of white wolf games with uh he got me into this game called feng shui have you heard of it Oh, that's uh, it's I like know. a kung fu game, right? It is. So it's so Robin Laws. It's designed by a guy here in Toronto. Um, Robin Laws is an amazing game designer, and he basically—it's so weird. He was a huge fan of Hong Kong action movies, which were really coming into their own, and people were starting to obsess over them like crazy. They were kind of hitting this pop culture zeitgeist, like like the post kind of kung fu boom or whatever you want to call it. Um, and there was a card game, you know, collectible card games were huge. Magic the Gathering created a whole industry of these card games. And there was a card game that was this like karate martial arts thing called Shadow Fist, I think. And they wanted to make a tabletop role-playing game for, for Shadow Fist. And he designed this game that is like the Hong Kong action movie role-playing game. And it doesn't need to be attached at all to the original card game stuff. It is Friggin' awesome. It is an amazing game. It's so elegantly put together. And it kind of changed the way that I run my own games. Because up till that point, everyone that I would play with, you would role play, you would talk, you know, you'd get into character, you'd have dramatic scenes or whatever. But the minute that combat happened, everything would turn into numbers, right? It would turn into strategy. Sometimes you'd have a battle map with miniatures and other times you'd just be talking about crushing numbers, like who's got the biggest bonuses and how am I going to, you know, leverage my, my stats. And so everything would sort of stop on a dime for this statistical thing. And for some reason, you stopped role-playing. Even it, I always compared it to like Final Fantasy. You'd play the video game and there'd be all this flowery story stuff. And then when the combat happens, everyone just walks forward, hits each other, bup, 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 and little numbers pop up. And then someone dies. And then, okay, now back to the story. Um, but Feng Shui basically said, no, role-playing is part of combat. You have to describe the badass and amazing things you do like it's a Hong Kong movie. And if you do a really good job... The, the game master will give you bonuses for your actions. Now, dude, a good GM should be doing that regardless. Sure, but, but we didn't do that. In the, we didn't do that back in the day because because it wasn't in the rules. Do you know what I mean? Okay. 
Absolutely. Now, I think I'm kind of lucky in that sense because we had the guy who predominantly was our GM. You know the website Addicting Games, like that yeah. has all the web-based games? The guy who founded that site was our friend that played with us when we were growing up, and his name nice. is Billy Karamuzzi. <laughs> I love you. Remember, everyone's is, name. Because, like, there was only seven of us, <laughs> and so it was always us. And he... To this day, I will always say that I run games based on the way he did it. He got super into describing what was happening, the things that were going on. Like, I remember specifically playing like a Robotech game where a guy had a Spartan and not a Spartan. Was it, was it the Spartan, the guy, the Robotech, the big mech that had just the massive missile launchers on the shoulders? Oh, I don't remember. I, I think you're right. A guy had that and was just firing off missiles the whole time. And Billy was like, he goes, oh, you start firing, but you fired off so many. The missile shell starts melting from the blowback in the flames. <laughs> and I remember being like, that moment, like, changed the way I thought about the way the game should work. Because I was like, because there's even an outtake in the, the, the rule, rule book for Heroes Unlimited that talks about how it's not realism you want it's plausibility you right. can have a guy who's super powered and has an sdc structural damage capacity by the way <laughs> of like 200 and uh, a nine millimeter handgun shouldn't do much damage but if you pull it out and put it point blank at your head and pull the trigger that should kill you because that's plausibility and so that changed the way i looked at it and when you're talking about this feng shui game it feels like you should be rewarding creative play. Of like course. what of the course. players at the table are describing. He does a backflip over here exactly. and he exactly. dodges under. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to let you do a passive parry on that. We're not even going to put that as an action. Right, Cause we'll it's do... so fun. And everyone yeah. is into it. And so Feng Shui codified that right in the rules oh, and also so has a really fun character generation system and plays into the corniness and the tropes of a lot of these Kung Fu and, and uh, Hong Kong action movies. And so it was an absolute scream to play. It was so much fun. It was so, and it made every other game I played and ran from then on, I wanted the Feng Shui style combat, you know, whatever the, the local system was, I was going to add bonuses. I was going to encourage my players to just whoop it up because everyone at the table is having a good time. And you're no longer like hitting combat and everything slows down. You hit combat and everyone's like, okay, let's do this. And it was just so much more fun. Um, so the tough thing in college was I was in residence. We had, you know, everyone had different school schedules. Everyone had homework. Everyone was busy, but you'd have these periods of, of free time or you'd have weekends or whatever. And we would want to get groups together, but it was really hard to have a regular game. Everyone was socializing and tons of events were happening. And so what I ended up doing was making a Feng Shui game where the premise was built around the fact that we couldn't get a regular group together. So what I did was I made it work like Mission Impossible. Every time we played, it was the mission had to round up tonight. So we were going to start and finish a mission. So it was super rapid fire, very simple. Whoever was there was recruited for the mission. So if you played last time, you bring the same character, they keep going. One of the nice things about Feng Shui is that the power levels between an experienced character and a starting character aren't that different. So it didn't really matter if you played 20 sessions and someone else comes in cold. You're not that, you're not that out of whack with each other. You can still do awesome stuff. And so... 
we would just pull together these hodgepodge groups of people and they were agents who were being hired by them by the company and they would go and do these cool missions and if you had a subplot you know you were looking for your lost lover or you know getting revenge for the death of your parents or whatever crazy crap i would further that plot line during your mission you'd get some tidbit or secret or a little bit of you know clue to the future but i would incorporate it into the mission because it was all part of this grand evil conspiracy and if you weren't there the next session you just weren't part of the mission so it just didn't matter you could you were on ice until the next time you showed up you know what i mean and it was an wild about you doing that at the time is you're having to keep track of all those notes on pen oh yeah paper Oh, yeah. You didn't have an Excel spreadsheet back then. Nope. No, it was no. a ton of fun, though, because w- at first we would get these groups of four or five people, random scatterings of people, and everyone would start having fun. Eventually, people would carve out time in their calendar to make sure they could play. I had too many players. I had like 10, 12 people wanting to play, and we had to do like a lottery system for who was going to play tonight because I didn't want 12 people at the table because it was just bonkers. Um, and we played it the way we played it up was like it was a television season. And for the season finale, the way we ended the year, I actually grabbed as many players as possible. I ran two different games with like eight people per game and then basically cool. brought everyone together in the evening. I ran one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And then in the evening, we had all 16 people show up for this like Royal Rumble against the big bad in this army. And it was the most chaotic garbage, like madness. But everyone's laughing oh, yeah. at the time, right? Just and, keeping track of the combat order would be difficult. <laughs> well, this is the thing is that because everyone knew this was going to be cast, everyone was being really good about it. Everyone was like, okay, helping me out. Or one of the other guys had started running his own games. And so he sort of like pseudo assist GM'd me for the combat stuff to help keep track of all the madness. Like it was just a really good time. Um, and so Feng Shui has a really special kind of place in my heart as a, as a system at a very particular part in my life, but I think still holds up really well. They did a sequel on, um, Kickstarter and, uh, it did phenomenally well. You know, it's, that a, is, it's, a that is it. something I really got to check out to me. That is much more in my vein than the vampire game would be sure. just, it's just, it's like, that, when you're talking about that late 90s Hong Kong action explosion, like when Replacement Killers like was a big, big blockbuster movie, you know, when was that going to happen before? Right, right. No, it's amazing. Like, you know, whether it's, um, you know, Cyberpunk 2020. Oh, it wasn't 2020. I think it was something. It's Cyberpunk 2020 is the name of the new video game. It was something else. It was Cyberpunk some year, whatever. That's probably yeah. already passed because we're in the future. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cyberpunk was a pretty cool game. And then there was Shadow Run, which was that funky mix of like cyberpunk stuff and fantasy. Um, I'm trying to think of other games that we would play at different points. Just weird, uh, weird stuff. Stuff we would do one-offs of. There's this really Legend of the Five Rings was uh, something that floated around with us in the in Legend college. of the Five Rings. Yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, so awesome. That was a game where you could you could wait your character. I remember one of the guys playing didn't have any samurai skills whatsoever because it's a Legend of the Five Rings is a samurai feudal feudal Japan set game. So he didn't take any of that stuff, but he pumped all of his points into luck 
So whenever combat came up, he wouldn't do well, but he would always survive. Nice. He would just like do- just dodge it, and it wouldn't really hit him, or it, like the arrow wouldn't really hit him, and stuff like that. Call of Cthulhu was another really good one. We would play that creepy. The tough thing with Call of Cthulhu was it requires a lot of like your characters suck, and they're going to go crazy, yeah. and you're trying to like uncover very dark secretive stuff and of course one or two people in the group are always just goofballs or they're trying to be action heroes in a game where no one's an action hero and no one's going to survive and so it was always this awkward thing where the dm's desperately trying to keep things on the serious path and everyone's just slowly crumbling into stupidity um (laughs) <laughs> trying, Much like trying to side itself right now. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think of other games where we played so much different stuff. Like just now, a would you metric? Would you call that board game Hero Quest a role playing game? Because to me, I, I will always think of it as a role playing game because it was a board game from Milton Bradley that apparently right. was the precursor to Warhammer. Right. And that was a game where you played with the little minis on the grid. Like it has the same. I think grid it depended on. I think it depended on who you played with, right? So if you we played with track players, of characters, yeah, yeah. If you played with role players, then they would play the characters like personalities, right? Mm-hmm. The same thing with Talisman. I would play that Games Workshop game Talisman, Ooh, and it's just great. a it's just a board game where you go in circles and you kill monsters and you get powerful and one person goes to the middle and wins. And strategically you should do certain things, but we would play characters a certain way. So if you played the thief, you'd be like I'm going to steal from everything everywhere <laughs> no matter what yeah. the risk is, I'm going to do it because I'm the thief. You know what I mean? And so we would role play the board games if they had the the veneer of a role playing game, if they were fantasy or if they were sci-fi or whatever. You know, we wouldn't just play it straight or play it strategic. We would always add that little bit of character ridiculous or or have a dumb voice or, you know, stuff like that. So the the guy who is my regular DM for the D and D game I'm playing in right now, he uses HeroScape as the gateway drug for his kids. Oh, HeroScape was like different from Hero's or, Quest. Or yeah. okay, no, it, well, he's got both of them because he's I have that no kind doubt. of lunatic. I have no doubt. Like they, <laughs> so, the uh, Venn diagram is sure. Using, yeah, so he's using it as the the gateway drug because his kids are, I want to say, eight six and three going on four. So they, they have seen us play and they want to play too, but they don't quite have the mechanics yet to get into a full D and D game, or at least not all three of them. So he uses this game to kind of like, this is the training wheels to to get them in. And he figures if they like it and we play this enough, then maybe I'll start running a a simplified D and D game for them. When the youngest one gets old. There's a lot of board games like that nowadays too, right? And they've got those D&D board games as well. I think they're good ways to kind of give people a structure with the pre-generated characters and the scenarios and make it very, very easy for them to start to identify, you know, this sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. The very first uh, the very first RPG game experience I had with my kids, there's a game out there uh, called Hero Kids, and it's when you talk stripped down and basic, it only uses the D6. And so, mm. the way it works is is let's just say you're the fighter. You have three attack dice, and so what you do is you roll your three dice, and then 
the person you're fighting has one defense dice. So they roll the one D six and then whoever has the highest roll out of the two of you wins. So it's really stripped down and each character only has a maximum of three hit points. So you're fine. You're hurt. You're really hurt or you're unconscious. And so that was the first game that we played with the kids and you only have one skill that you can do, you know, like one person can jump, one person can steal. And so it was, I needed something that was a little bit more expansive for them because they were starting to get bored. But if anybody's got like a four or five year old or a six year old even, and is looking for something to get into, that's what I would recommend is hero kids. And you can get the whole thing, like a $20 PDF download. And then you've got everything there is pre-made characters and everything. It's good. That's neat. There's there's a bunch of these games that I think are built for either kids or for almost like party games where you can play one scenario over an evening with a group of people who might be role players or they might just be, you know, kind of role play adjacent or whatever. Like you could get them on board and this is a good way in the door. Um, there's a game called Kobolds Ate My Baby, which is you basically <laughs> you play a kobold. And you're, you're trying to steal food or eat babies, go into human villages and eat babies. And there's a bunch of sort of call and response stuff built into the game. So for people who aren't used to role playing, there's, it's almost like um, coded language. Like you, because you're kobolds and kobolds all follow this uh, king called King Torg. And they're like, when Torg tells you, the, here's the rules to be a kobold. So you get to be in character. You know what your expectation is. Well, I have to be, have to have an evil laugh and I have to do this and I have to do this. And so when you set up these scenarios, you're, you're doing these call and response. You know, you're saying, okay, um, you guys have to do this. And whenever the, the, the dungeon master, the game master, whatever, says the word King Torg, everyone, all the players have to say, all hail King Torg. And so it's a <laughs> stupid thing where you're just randomly talking. You go, oh, you realize over there, there's a, you know, the, the human flag that would go really good as a tablecloth on King Torg's table. And then they're like, oh, hell King Torg. And then they, you know, you roll your dice and you try and do the thing. And it's very simple scenarios. It's goofy and dorky and you're going to play through it in an hour. But because people are not just moving, you know, things on a board because they have to pretend to be evil little creepy creatures, people get into it. And people that have never role played before, feel what we feel as role players that escapism that sense of i don't have to be myself i can put on a funny voice and be goofy and weird and it's okay because the game says it's okay in a very strict and very focused way you know what i mean and so um i think that one's really cool have you guys heard of a game called fiasco no but i love it all by the name (laughs) So Fiasco is a really, really, it is a sort of the other end of the spectrum where it is almost all role play. There's literally, the, the rules are unbelievably simple. It's like a theater game given uh, the vaguest of structures. And so what it is, is you are going to make a Coen Brothers movie. And so how that works is each of you is going to generate the story and the characters and the cast sitting at the table together. So the overall scenario might be, you know, high school prom, and then someone's going to make the mean girl and someone's going to make the jock and someone's going to make whatever. And you're going to figure out literally you're trading these kind of uh, traits back and forth that determine, well, back in 
elementary school, we were friends, but now I hate you. And over here, you know, you told someone a secret and then we decide what that secret is or whatever. So it's a really flexible kind of drama tool. And then you play through these little scenes and the scenes are real time role play. You're just talking to each other. So you're like, it's two days before the prom and you want to ask out so-and-so. And now it's the two of you having a conversation. Now, normally in a role playing game, you know, if two characters are having a conversation, no one else gets to do anything. You're all just waiting around. Well, the rest of the players are whispering amongst themselves, quietly huddled in the corner and making a decision about whether they want you, they're going to let one character succeed or not. And there's a certain number of dice on the table that are success dice and certain dice that are failure dice. And so midway through the scene, they're going to pass one of these over to you and you have to role play out the end result. So it's like this weird kind of mix of almost like whose line is in any ways meets a theater game meets role playing meets a Coen brothers movie. And yeah, it is similar to, uh, did you, have you played the, the worldwide wrestling RPG? I have not. It, oh, yeah. It's similar in structure to that, except, uh, with that year, it's mainly based on role playing. It's not so much combat because right. you're playing, you're essentially kind of playing two characters. You're playing the guy who is the character in the ring. Like, so you're playing Dwayne Johnson and right. you're also playing the rock. Like they're, oh they're gosh. two separate. Oh yeah, my gosh. It, it's called, uh, the world, uh, the worldwide. Do wrestling I get to cut a playing. promo? That's all I want. Oh, that is part of the game. And there's like a, uh, they did one expansion book where it's called, uh, international incident, which gives you rules for playing, uh, Japanese wrestlers and, uh, luchadors. That's, awesome. so, That's amazing. Uh, yeah, man, I got, so uh, you know, go any, ahead. Any, any kind of game that you can just get people into a mode where they're acting essentially and, and that they don't feel obsessed with the rules that they're doing it wrong. Do you know what I mean? Those are really mm. good entry points for role-playing. I feel like stuff like fiasco and, and, Kobolds ain't my baby. I'm sure the world wrestling thing, because you got so many wrestling fans, it'd be a real easy entry point for people to just understand what is expected of them, you know? Yeah, somebody did a podcast where they played the game with with a pro wrestler, Colt Cabana, who has a podcast. He's a funny guy. And it was just hilarious. Like it was three stand-up comedians and this pro wrestler. And I think the they did two sessions for the podcast, and it, it's worth a listening. Amazing. There's a game uh, called The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And oh, wow. that is <laughs> awesome. It's it's another one of the basically it's a bluffing game that all plays out in one evening or, or even an hour or so. What you essentially do is you're all supposed to be these nobles who have come together for drinks and stories, and you're going to start lying to each other. You're going to start boasting about your deeds like Munchausen would. And the bigger and the crazier you get, the more impressive you will be at the table. However, everyone else at the table is subtly trying to tear apart your story by asking you questions that will basically disable the logic. Mm -hmm. And then if you are unable to answer in a way that satisfies the table, you sort of lose control of the story. But if you're able to incorporate it into it, it becomes funnier and funnier. People are laughing their heads off because they can't believe that you just effortlessly side, you know. So I'll give you an example. You're talking and you're just like, 
uh, you know, you know, being here this evening with you reminds me of the time I was in the West Andes and, you know, I was on a balloon race and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, when exactly did someone goes, when did that take place? And they go, oh, well, last spring. And they go, I'm pretty sure last spring, you know, you had, uh, you were in a wheelchair and, you know, your legs were locked up in casts because you'd injured yourself. And he goes, I never said I wasn't in a cast while I was in the balloon, my good friend, you know? And so <laughs> you, you just, you just. It's yes and. It's this just huge improv kind of story boasting uh, game. And it has the loosest of rules. Oh, it's amazing. If I do that with my kids, they'll learn how to be good liars. I can't afford (laughs) them being able to pull the wool over my ass like that. Like, that's a dangerous game in my house. The way that I got introduced to it was really amazing. I go to Gen Con every year, the big, you know, gaming convention here in North America. When I was kids, uh, my brother and I, we would look through the old D&D modules. And in the front of a disproportionate number of them, they would say, this adventure was originally a tournament at, you know, Gen Con 1980 or whatever. And we'd be like, Gen Con the Shangri-La of gaming, you know, what would that be like? And it's amazing. It's a phenomenal show. One of my favorites every year. Um, and now I have a booth there and I sell my stuff and whatever, but after hours, you're usually exhausted. You've done an entire day at the show. You're on your feet, you're selling your stuff, you're networking, whatever. Sometimes there's industry parties, but a few years ago, one of the guys that I know in the industry, he sent out this sort of message to a bunch of his friends. And he said, I've been coming to Gen Con for 20 plus years I've stopped playing games at Gen Con and I got into this industry because I love games. So what I've done is I've rented one of the hotel ballrooms sort of on the outer edge of the city. Uh, We're all just going to get together and play games. So don't go to any industry parties. Don't go out for your networking dinner. Come here and just hang out. And it's been a huge smash. There's a whole little cabal of us that get together and we play games. And sometimes designers will bring like games that haven't been released yet, like stuff they're still playtesting. Other times people are just hanging out. And one of the guys brought Munchausen and we got a group of us together. And these are like seasoned role players and game developers and writers, really creative people. And the amount of boasting and the bravado and the booze is flowing. And I is one of my best gaming memories. We're just having an absolute scream, making each other laugh and and you know, kind of one upping each other at each at each turn. So it's um it's a really awesome one. It's super sharp. So before I let you guys go, I've got two actual questions to ask you. What? Um <clears throat> One of the things that came up when I was talking, I would I talked to my role playing friends before uh, I really sat down for this and just like bounced off of them. Is there any questions or ideas you want me to float past my two guests? And one of the ones that came up was an interesting one of why because we're all comic book geeks as well. Mm. Why hasn't there been? A licensed Marvel or DC game uh, that is stuck. I, you uh, know, the Marvel game from the early '80s did quite well, and it was the around. TSR version, yeah, 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 it was around yeah, for yeah. a while. They did a lot of stuff with it. The DC Heroes one didn't seem to attach as long, but um, the Marvel game was around for years. They did tons of supplements for that game. It had a, a pretty long shelf life, um, but they haven't been able to to relaunch it in the modern era, and I'm not sure why. Um, I, you'd figure nowadays more than ever with the Marvel cinematic universe and everything else. And the, the 
love of RPGs going on. You know, if I have my druthers, if I was in charge of Marvel, I would definitely be mining that because the promotional opportunities of not just having a game out there, but having people playing it online and promoting your brand is so strong. You know, it just seems like a slam dunk. I just think it's because the attractive element of the role-playing game community is creating your own thing and building your own character. And like the, the, the Marvel role-playing game was you played their characters and you played in their world. There and were you could rules do for all kinds of own, but yeah, it, it wasn't like, not, yeah, it was kind of like you could create your version of Thor. And it was like, it was kind of like one of those knockoff colognes, you know, it's just, it was, wasn't <laughs> as cool as like making your own guy. And, I don't know. I think that was what drew us to Heroes Unlimited more so than the Marvel role-playing game. And that's it would be cool if they if they created a role-playing game where you could build off the specific power sets from there and you could build like these world books of Asgard. You could have an Asgardian character. You could have Well, I think a well, that's the key is you need to have Yeah. Like, you're going to be the new student at the Xavier school and you're a different mutant than, but you get to interact with the young, you know, yeah. other mutants. Cause then, then there, there's characters, you know, Oh, storm is one of my teachers or Wolverine's going to teach us combat or something. But then you've got your own identity and your own kind of thing that you're going to carve out. And you could almost like treat it like the way in fifth edition where you teach your style of martial art. Like, let's just say you're a mutant and you choose who is going to be your mentor and that unlocks specific abilities and skill sets and feats. You know, we're building one right now for free, man. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We got all the advice right here. We got it all figured out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I should warn you, uh, Disney has happened to uh, come up with ideas just after I do podcasts. So I swear my house is bugged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if it pops up next uh, week, uh, Jim's got the contacts, right? We can start asking for money. If it pops up, it's because they finally heard me. It was oh a God. few years ago, Brent was saying on his podcast, they should buy Star Wars. And wouldn't you know, they bought <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've got a, I've got a more interesting story about the Marvel side of things that uh, is a little along those lines that I'll tell off air. So one of the last questions that I wanted to ask you guys is, do you have a favorite gaming memory? Is there something from a session or from a game that really sticks out in, in your brain? Because I know I I've got a couple. I've got, I've got so many, like, you know, gaming has been such an important part of my my life. Um, and so it's a little bit hard to put it all into one moment. I did um, last year, almost a year ago, actually, it was like uh, they did this event in Los Angeles called D&D Live. And it's almost like the Apple keynote of Dungeons and Dragons. So they get everyone a bunch of uh, uh, the developers and artists together and they have a limited sort of ticket pool for fans. And we had this theater that was all decked out and all weekend they were doing these uh, demonstrations and interviews and live game sessions and kind of like D and D celebrities for like, you know, Joe Manganiello is there and Deborah Ann wall and uh, Matt Mercer and the critical role people. And it was just this like, 
amazing experience because everyone who's there is is into it and having an absolute blast and they're unveiling kind of the next you know six to eight months worth of amazing stuff that's coming out i had like three different projects that were being announced at that event and so they flew my uh, wife and i out and we got to do this event all weekend and it was like summer camp for D&D. Like it was like the camaraderie with everyone was phenomenal. A bunch of the people that I had been working with on the D&D comics and on the game product stuff on the Rick and Morty versus D&D stuff were all there. Um, everyone was amazing. The fans were just vibrant. And these live game sessions, if you've never been to one, it sounds really insane to say, hey, 500 people are going to sit in a theater and watch six people on stage play D&D. But when you have actors or you have performers who are great at what they do or, you know, are they know how to play to the crowd and they're they're into it and they don't know what's going to come next because of the randomness of the roles and the dungeon master and everything else. There is a real joy to it. It's an improv kind of thing on overdrive with all the precepts of a, a role playing game that, you know, and so they asked me to do a live game on Saturday night, which was the big, you know, sort of uh, finish to the event. And it was my birthday. I got to play a character that I had been writing in the comics for like the last, you know, six years. Who's also this character Minsk has been, um, he's a cult character in the video game Baldur's Gate. I'd been writing him in the comics for years. I love the character. He's so much fun. I got to be that character on stage. Um, I was really intimidated by the group I was going to be playing with. And so um, I knew I kind of had to bring my a game. Like I had to really amp it up and they had like professional makeup artists and costumers there. And so ahead of time we worked out that I was going to, cause the character is bald. I shaved my head just before the session. So no one knew I was playing this character uh, other than the, the staff, but none of the people in the crowd knew I was there all weekend. I'd been signing books. I'd been doing panels. And then all of a sudden I step out on stage in makeup with a bald head, as the character to great applause. And then we played for hours on stage and it was just fun. It was just the most pure, crazy, ridiculous D and D experience. And imagine rolling well in a game session with your friends and it's exciting rolling well in a game session with 500 people who are cheering, like outright roaring their approval over your random dice rolls. It's like a concert. It is the most, and it was live streaming out to somewhere in the realm of a hundred thousand people around the world. Some people who were staying up all night to watch this crazy session because a bunch of their favorite actors and bloggers and nerd liberties were, were playing. I had some of my friends and family were watching it live on the stream, people in the chat. Like it was the most bonkers thing I've ever experienced in all my years of gaming or, or honestly conventions. And, um, after it was over, you couldn't believe how fast the time had gone by. We had an absolute blast. It all wraps up and we're backstage and I'm like washing all this makeup off and I'm bald. And my wife comes over, gives me a big kiss. And then we go out for drinks with everyone. And it was like an out of body experience. It was like a, like a Broadway performance or something like we had just brought the house down, you know? Um, and to have that kind of experience from a, from Dungeons and Dragons just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel real. I, you know, I was there, obviously they filmed it. You can watch it online. 
Um, but it still doesn't feel real. It was so, so friggin' cool. All right, Fred. I should have, shouldn't have let you go first. <laughs> so well, if it makes you feel um, any better, Fred, I was thinking the exact same thing. You can cut it last. I don't know what yeah, else to tell you. I'm so, um, you know what? This is what it was. It was Rifts. It was Bobby Smale, Matt Enixon, and Jay Marchant. It was the summer <laughs> between grade eight and grade nine. Jay was like the friend who always, he was the one-upper. Like, you could tell the best story ever, and he always had the better story. You know, he was that guy. Like, oh, I went here. Oh, I went there and here. You know, he was that guy. And he would DM a lot. And whenever he DM'd, it wasn't so much about the game as it was about him including a new type of character. As you said, the four billion types of characters you could have in that game. It was him including a type of character from a new book that he had just gotten that no one else had that he, no one was even allowed to read the book before he got it. And I remember in this rifts game, like he it was one of those like adventures where it was clearly he made it cause we were supposed to fail. And I, I remember talking with Bobby about this specifically and we kind of got into a little bit of a tilly with these like uh, mutant pig gangster guys. And it was, they were supposed to like push us around and then, you know, we were going to like do what they told us and just to ruin the game, because I was so annoyed with Jay just to ruin the game. I shot the informant guy point blank in the face and I rolled the natural 20 and blew his head off. And then he (laughs) couldn't figure out how to make the rest of the game work and we stopped playing. And in terms of like, I, d- I generally speaking do most of the DMing and GMing with the games that I play now. So knowing what that's like from the other side, oh, it's it's amazing. Because we ended up stopping the rest of the game because he just didn't know what to do. And I ruined something for someone. And I ruined something for someone that was being a jerk. And that made me feel really good. And I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> Not as good of a story. A lot. I had that in a sad, D&D but game. to me... It's beautiful. I had that in a D&D game where uh, my DM's uh, wife is is one of the players. I've known and I knew her before I knew him. And he had the the big bad come out and monologue, but we didn't realize this was going to be the super big bad for the game and Kim just pipes up halfway through the monologue of I'm going to shoot him with an arrow. And she just kept rolling on it and arrow like straight through the eye, through the back of the head. Big bad for like what he had planned for like six sessions. Done. (laughs) And he's like, well, guess we're playing next week because I don't know what we're going to do for the rest of the night. Uh, I love role playing games so much. I do too. I love the chaotic factor of it. That absolutely the the, the dungeon master doesn't know what's going to happen. The players don't know what's going to happen. We have to come together to figure this thing out. The more that one group tries to control the narrative, the less chance it's going to happen. That's what I love about it. I love that it is truly collaborative in its craziness. And and sometimes it feels like it plays out in a very cinematic fashion, but just as many times it plays out in a ludicrous fashion that doesn't resemble Hollywood or, or anything you've ever seen before. And it feels in some ways more true because sometimes things just go wrong because sometimes randomness destroys 
the things that we want to do because we don't always get control over our own, you know, destinies. Destiny just comes and thumps us. And I think that there's something really visceral and joyous about that, about that interactivity and, and the unexpected nature of it. All right. Well, thank you two very much for uh, participating in this. Uh, when I came up with the idea, you guys were both at the top of my list and I managed to snag you both. So I'm quite happy about this. Uh, before we go, uh, we'll just go around the table and just tell people where they can find you. Uh, we'll start with Fred. Fred? Uh, I'm on Twitter <laughs> at fearless underscore Fred. And I'm on Instagram at fearless underscore Fred. And I'm, yeah, that's, yeah, that's really all the only places that I am right now. So you can find me on both those places. Nice. Um, that kind of hub site for all my stuff is just jimzub.com. So J I M Z U B.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at, at, you know, jimzub. And uh, I'm in other spots too, but it's pretty easy to find all that stuff. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for, uh, any of my books or you look for previews on my website, I also have tutorials on how to write comics, how to pitch your comic stories and, uh, a pretty steady stream of nerdity on my Twitter, whether that's uh, game stuff or comic stuff. You've been listening to the True North Nerds. You can find us at truenorthnerds.com on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under True North Nerds. To contact one or any of the nerds, you can email them at truenorthnerds at gmail.com. If you like this show, please go to your podcast app of choice and rate and review us.